Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemong podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the 20th International Workshop on Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma, which was held in Miami, Florida, and brought together leading experts who discussed the latest in the field. In this podcast, you will hear from Francine Foss, Stephen Horwitz, Francois Lemonnier, and Laurence Deleval, who discuss key updates in the biology and treatment of T-cell lymphoma. Hello, I'm Francine Foss, and I'd like to introduce you to my colleagues uh, here at the IWNHL at our T-cell session. Francois Lamonnier, my co-chair, um, Laurence Delaval, and Dr. Steve Horwitz. So I'd like to ask my, my uh, colleagues here to summarize briefly what they thought the important uh, points were from their talk. Francois, you talked a little bit about um, just the background of mutations in T-cell lymphoma and what's going to be important to us as clinicians. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, uh, of course, uh, Francine. So I provided some uh, some overview of the data accumulated past 10 uh, years on um, genetic substratification and characterization of, uh, um, of lymphomas. I talked a little bit about uh, historical group that uh, of anaplastic large cell lymphomas ALK positive versus ALK negative, that distinction that still matters. But the question uh, now is uh, what's the significance of the uh, genetic variants of ALK negative ALCL? And the situation is not so, uh, is not so clear about the relevance of uh, this test testing for DUSP22 uh, rearrangement, while TP63 rearranged cases are uh, generally aggressive, but they're very rare. There seem to be uh, other variants with, like JAK2 rearranged, but less well characterized, so there's still a way to go. In addition, those cases um, have frequent mutations in the JAK-STAT uh, pathway. That's another way of looking at the, the mutations and the abnormalities is by pathway rather than by entities. And um, among the signaling pathway that are important in the pathogenesis with potential therapeutic intervention are the JAK-STAT signaling pathway often activated by mutations or rearrangements and the T-cell receptor NF-kappa-B uh, pathway also supposedly mostly activated by uh, rearrangements. These abnormalities, you see them in various PTCL uh, entities. That's the uh, that, that's the background for uh, constructing clinical uh, trials that are entity agnostic but based uh, based on the molecular uh, alteration and. I think the JAK stat is the best, well, uh, best characterized with uh, also best characterized um, inhibitors. So that was developed further by my uh, by my colleagues and especially yes, Steve, by you talked Steve about for that. some JAK inhibitors. You, you gave us some clinical data from some of your studies. Yeah. So we really I, what I talked about today was really looking at a couple of signaling pathways: JAK stat, TI three kinase, ITK, and then some of the preliminary clinical data. So in the um, Targeting the JAK-STAT pathway, we did a, a, a phase two study of ruxolitinib, and we're able to see that there is some activity with targeting that pathway, and that that it activity is most in patients that have alterations of that pathway with mutations or uh, elevated phosphostat signaling. So it looks like by targeting that pathway, uh, you can have responses, you enrich your responses, and then you know a lot of work looking at trying to correlate you know how much we can predict 
who's likely to respond, who's not going to respond, so we can individualize the strategy. And Francois, you talked a little bit about uh, the, the whole epigenetic landscape and how we could potentially target that. Yes, indeed. Um, actually, we know that for more than 10 years, I think maybe between 10 and 15 years, that there are very recurrent mutations in uh, T-cell lymphomas, especially the, TF, the TFH-derived T-cell lymphomas, that mutations in tattoo in more than 80% of patients with uh, which important uh, epigenetic change, um, especially in the DNA methylation and hydroxymethylation. So it makes it rational to develop epi epigenetic drug therapies, including with azacitidine. Um, so we met um, with the, the French group, the LISA, but with other collaborators in, um, in UK, in, with the Nordic Lymphoma Group in Japan, uh, in Vietnam, that uh, we made a phase three uh, study, oracle study, that randomized the, um, the oral form of the azacitidine, the CC486, um, in the experimental arm, um, randomized against the uh, control arm with um, drugs at the choice of the investigator between homidepsin, gemcitabine, or bandamustine. So, um, the the trial showed interesting results with, um, with an increase of the overall survival and the PFS, the progression free survival, which was the, um, the primary endpoint, actually was not reached, likely due to um, a lack of power of the study because there was only uh, 40, 43 patients treated, treated with, uh, with azacitidine. So um, we, we observed some response, some sustained response, because some patients are still on therapy now, of, of years after the, the initiation of the treatment. And so we want to um, try to understand better how to improve those results. And the safety profile of the drug was very good, actually. Um, and so there's place, there's space for combination, and we, we really want to, to investigate again the, the, this drug in combination in those, uh, in those lymphoma patients. And I, I talked a little bit about valimetastat, which also um, is an epigenetic modifier of, of some sort. Um, and it looked like the response rates were very high with valimetastat across different subtypes, uh, which is something that we haven't necessarily seen with some of our other therapies. Uh, and I know this touches on um, something that Steve talked about, which is that we're now starting to dissect and look at specific subsets and rare subsets and identifying pathways forward for some of those. And Steve, if you want to briefly just tell us a little bit about uh, maybe some of these orphan orphans that you have seen activity for uh, in some of these new drug trials that have been doing. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think the best example we have of that right now still is with targeting JAK-STAT. So um, not us, but others have identified that some of these tumors are really characterized by these frequent fusions, particularly in JAK2. And there's a whole class of tumors that have this, including some rare cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, the aggressive epidermotropic. Um, we see them sometimes. We've seen them in PLL. We've seen them in some other kinds of PTCL. And then we see these sometimes in, in LGL. And these sort of rare or ultra-rare subtypes that have these specific mutations, it looks like some of those some of those patients, not all, are exquisitely sensitive to JAK inhibition. So we talked about this idea that there may be molecular or genetic subtypes where there may be a very effective, specific on-target on treatment. And I think the, the ruxolitinib data is sort of proof of that concept, but there's probably other ways of identifying these and other ways of going about that. But, you know, and then there's a lot of discussion about the challenges in T-cell lymphoma and how do we generate good enough data in these ultra-rare subtypes to, to generate either clinical use or payer support or even mm -hmm. even approval. And that's, right. a, that's, of course, a big challenge. Right. Yeah. And uh, Laurence, if you want to just summarize for us some of the um, 
the data with animal models and how pertinent they are to us in the future and also whether or not uh, you feel we're in the era where every patient with aggressive T-cell lymphoma should have uh, deep sequencing done to identify these mutations. So it's many questions in one, Francine. Uh -huh. I assume that uh, you're, um, you're making reference to the, the talk that was provided by uh, Dr. Ingirami <coughs> from Cornell. So he, he presented us an, an update of uh, data he has uh, already uh, partly explained uh, a few years ago. So um, as I understand, they have uh, constructed, built um, multidimensional uh, platform using uh, human samples and uh, trying to um, create uh, patient-derived uh, xenografts uh, in, <clears throat> in mice. That was the basics. He has uh, explained to us that by doing so, there's a high attrition rate with uh, maybe, um, I, I think there was at least 30% uh, attrition from what he uh, explained. But uh, they successfully uh, obtained multiple PDX models of angiominoblastic T-cell lymphoma, for example, which is really the disease that is very common and that has no cell line, but also a lot of microenvironment that is retained mm -hmm. in those um, in those uh, in those mice. So that really provides a good experimental substrate to to test for drugs. And I'm mm -hmm. taking the liberty because I'm sitting by Francois. Uh, I believe that uh, he has a similar. Um, a similar approach and also successfully constructed some xenografts for drug testing mm -hmm. in ex vivo and um, and make additional testings. Giorgio Ingirami also explained that uh, he could manipulate uh, native human cells with the specific mutations and uh, create uh, tumor models in potentially in humanized uh, mice. He explained the complementarity of the different of these different models in the platform. Now, to what extent this platform can really be used in real life to adapt a therapy that so far he has not really shown to us that this was uh, done on a, on a daily or could be done in due time and on a daily basis. Uh, basis. Maybe you want yeah. to comment on that, yeah. uh, Steve, because I mean, we, it's close to you. Yeah, we've worked a lot with Giorgio. Yeah, no, I think I think Giorgio has been fantastic at developing these models and then we can test them. We haven't done it like real time concurrent yeah. with developing a model, testing drugs, and then going back to the patient. What we've seen is if you look at what happened to the patient, in terms of sensitivity or not to therapy, you can often recapitulate that in the PDX, but not yet yes, providing exactly. real-time clinical <laughs> information yet. And maybe, Francine, there was another part to your question. Do I believe that uh, patients with T-cell lymphoma should uh, undergo uh, genetic testing? I would say I believe so, uh, yes. And uh, I think, um, I mean, I. It's also my interest, but I, I do it. Uh, I do it at the diagnosis. I think we learn from that uh, approach also to to learn about those uh, patterns, to find out some associations. I think any single uh, limit, I mean, uh, single observations have value in this disease. With this disease group of disease that are very heterogeneous. The same way as uh, Steve said, sometimes there's very limited response, uh, but the, it's it's one element. It's one data point. Similar in diagnosis, we see a lot of uh, va variability, and I think it matters. We may accumulate data and then maybe find you know relevant subgroups uh, or li limited. Yeah. 
numbers of individuals with a similar patterns that, that may be relevant. If, if, so. I, if, I can, I saying, if I can just add to that, I think the practical aspect that we see also is, in addition to learning, more and more of our choices at relapse, they're not directed by, but they're informed by the molecular testing. So if you get it at baseline, you have it when the patient doesn't respond to therapy relapses. If you wait till the relapse, you don't have that information in real time. So we think there's a practical benefit to getting a baseline in addition to so much more understanding of the disease. Yeah. And helping diagnosis. And, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's really helpful for the diagnosis uh, because it really helps to have a better classification. And I, you know, I think we really made a huge progress in the understanding of the T-cell lymphoma pathogenesis. So I think now the, the molecular landscape is um, is known, probably we need to learn a bit more uh, regarding all the interaction between the lymphoma neoplastic cells and the microenvironment. I think we still have a lot, a lot of to learn. And now I think maybe the, the emergency is to find some drugs because we, now we have the mutations, we have the, uh, we, we have a better classification, a better understanding of the oncogenesis, but we, so now we need to find some good drugs to, to, to treat the, the. I think this was a really great session because we really brought the science and the clinical together and really kind of talked about the translational elements here that are going to be important moving forward. And I'd like to thank all my uh, panel members for uh, their intelligent and really enlightening discussions here today and look forward to our session next year. Thank you. Thank you, Francine. Thank, thank you, Francine. you all. Francois, thank Steve. You. Thank, you. thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple, and Podbean. Until next time.